Let's return in our Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis, the second chapter. Chapter 2 in Genesis is a supplement to the creation account of Genesis 1. It takes a closer look at the creation of man and what God does to set him up for business, you might say, as the one who's going to, of all the creatures, show off the glory of God in his calling. So we have come thus far to the planting of a garden, the Garden of Eden, the word Eden meaning delight, the Garden of Delight, and a man has been given the task of tending and keeping the garden. Just bear in mind from two weeks ago as we turn again to chapter 2 that God is doing more than just lavish love on Adam as he creates this garden for him. He's also showing him what his job will be. Adam's calling in Genesis 1 was put in the terms of ruling the earth and filling the earth. And in Genesis 2, that looks like Adam receiving a garden that's a kind of template for what the rest of the world can become if Adam and his descendants are faithful. Verse 10 through 14 is our text for this morning, and that's a portion of Genesis 2 that sounds a little bit like a real estate ad. The kind that tells you not only where to find the land that's for sale, but also uh, why you might want to live there. The text is verses 10 through 14, but I'm going to begin reading at verse 9. We'll read through verse 15. Genesis chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Grant your blessing, O Lord, on this important portion your word. We pray that you will give to us greater awe through it of not only who you are, but what you're doing in this world you've made. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with a first of three points. The mystery of the lost land of Eden. 
Now we're looking at a text that describes the land of Eden. And if you were to go to the back of your Bibles, many of you have maps there in the back of your Bibles, you will not find this land of Eden marked in the maps there. There's a lot of discussion about where this land actually was, and you may know that there is very little consensus about that question. Matthew Henry says it this way, the place is here particularly pointed out by such marks and bounds as were sufficient, I suppose, when Moses wrote to specify the place to those who knew that country. But now it seems the curious cannot satisfy themselves concerning it. Indeed, uh, there's not only mystery about the location of the land, but there's actually some mystery that remains this day about the text that's before us. Now, not everything is mysterious. Let's look first at a few things that are clear about this land of Eden. That land of Eden, you see back in verse 8, how it's spoken of, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed. The land of Eden, we come to see, is a much larger land than the garden itself. The garden of Eden doesn't mean the garden and Eden are the same. It's the garden that's in this larger land called Eden. And we learned something fairly straightforward, that there is a river in the larger land of Eden that feeds or flows into the garden. The river from Eden flows into the garden. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. You might be having a mental picture of a large land, a subset of it, the garden, and a river flowing from that larger land into the garden. And then we're told something also fairly straightforward, that that one river divided into four rivers. The river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there, in the vicinity of the garden, it divided and became four rivers. One other thing that's fairly clear from the account of the land of Eden is that these four rivers all coming out of the one great river flow eventually into the broader regions of the earth. They flow out of the land of Eden into the broader regions of the earth and we're told, for example, the river Pishon flows into the land of Havilah. The river Gihon flows into the land of Cush. The uh, The river Tigris flows east of Assyria and Well, we're not told much about where Euphrates flows. It would appear that's so obvious, it doesn't even need elaboration. Of course, you recognize at least two of the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Those are actually there in your Bible maps. Uh, You see them running through what we call today, modern-day Iraq. Uh, The old name is Mesopotamia is a word that means the land of two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Those things are clearer to us, but there's some things unclear from our vantage point today about this land of Eden. We know of two of the rivers, at least rivers that go by that name today, but we don't know about the other two. No rivers in our world today called the Pishon or the Gihon. And the lands to which those rivers flow, we don't have those 
lands marked on our maps today either, Havilah or Cush. And even perhaps more significantly, we don't know of a great river today that divides into four rivers and thereby waters vast regions of the earth. So there's still some mystery even about our text. There's a good reason for that mystery, though, and it's found in some of the subsequent events in the book of Genesis. We know that after the fall, man is banished from the garden. We presume that without man there to tend the garden, the garden loses its beauty and becomes wild again like the rest of the world. Not only has a great deal of time lapsed since that event of the fall, but a whole worldwide flood has occurred. That's changed the face of the earth, no doubt, in ways we can't even begin to measure. So, in light of all that and the things that seem to be beyond our grasp as we are told about this land of Eden, there's a lot of exegetes that are just content to leave the location of the land of Eden a total mystery. It's a land that's lost. Now, I think this congregation knows that I have a category for mystery, and I would be content to put this into that realm of things beyond our ability to know, except for one thing. Punting on this question of where the land of Eden was leaves us with a bigger mystery, and that is why in the world would the Bible take the time to tell us in verses 10 through 14, where it was. Again, the first part of that quote from Matthew Henry, the place is here particularly pointed out, by such marks and bounds as were sufficient, I suppose, when Moses wrote, to specify the place to those who knew that country. If you look again at verses 10 through 14, it certainly does seem like not only a description of the land, but even, you might say, directions about how to find it. It reads as if the river Pishon might not be as familiar, but you certainly will know the land of Havilah. The river Gihon perhaps is not as familiar, but the land of Cush will certainly be familiar. And of course, everyone knows where Assyria is, both then and now. Just to remember, brothers and sisters, we don't have to know what the world looked like at creation or even before the flood, because Genesis was written a very long time after both of those events. The human author of Genesis was writing to people who lived in the world that he's describing in Genesis 2. So instead of comparing what Moses tells us with our modern-day maps... Perhaps we should compare the description of this land of Eden with other places that are spoken of in the Old Testament. So that leads us to a second heading this morning. The first was the mystery of the lost land of Eden. The second is the man who gave instructions for finding Eden. This is the part of the sermon that Uh, may boggle the mind, but it will certainly tax you 
So gird up the loins of your minds, brothers and sisters. Remind our, let's remind ourselves now of who wrote the book we're studying. And who he wrote it originally to and for. And what his purpose was. Now, earlier in my preaching ministry, I put all this at the very front of a sermon series. So if I started a book in the Bible, I wanted to tell everybody who wrote it and who it was written for and what the circumstances were. And I kind of gave an outline and I learned that that's boring. Especially if you put it at the beginning of the series. There's not a whole lot of reason to get excited about all that at the beginning of the series. And so... I resolved in the beginning of this series to wait until this point in Genesis chapter 2 to tell us or remind us about these things because I think it has explosive significance for understanding our text today. Who wrote Genesis? Well, children, you should know this, Christianity, and for that matter, Judaism, has been in agreement for 2,000 plus years. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. That fancy word, kids, is a word, it's taken from the Latin, that means the five books that are the beginning of the Bible. The Hebrews call those five books, of course, the Torah. The Jews to this day speak of it that way. And uh, that's been the historic and traditional conviction of Christianity and, before that, Judaism. Now, that view of Moses being the author of Genesis, some of you will know, has been challenged. Last 200 years in particular, it's been challenged by theological liberalism, which has challenged, for that matter, a great deal of the other things that are part of historic Christianity. And in the place of mosaic, as we say, authorship of Genesis, liberals helpfully have given us a dizzying number of theories about who wrote Genesis. But wherever the Bible has been held in high esteem. The Mosaic authorship of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy has been unquestioned. You know why? Because the Bible itself claims that these books were written by Moses. Within the Pentateuch itself, we won't look at it, We're told how Moses wrote down the words of the law. We're told that more than once. He wrote down the words of the law. Moses is spoken of in outside of the Pentateuch as the one, for example, Judges chapter 3, the commandments of the Lord are referenced which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Jesus himself speaks of these books as written by Moses. Moses said, Jesus would say, or the book of Moses, as he would refer to it. So, brothers and sisters, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses, the first great prophet of Israel, the one who spoke face to face with God, he's the human author responsible for this book that we're studying in these days. He brought down from the mountain ten commandments of God written by the finger of God, we're told, and he also put into writing the account of creation all the way to the full giving of the law and the story of the Exodus. So that's who wrote the book of Genesis. And what's particularly helpful to us today 
is to remember those to whom he's originally writing this book. Who's he talking to? And what is their experience? This becomes helpful, at least to me, also downright exciting. Moses is writing Genesis for the benefit of a vast number of former Jewish slaves. They've just been delivered from their slavery in Egypt. They're on their way to what we call the promised land. And Moses is leading them to that land. And Genesis is Moses' effort to give these people on their way to that land a sense of their heritage. Who this God is that delivered them from Egypt and what he had done from their fathers and how he's fulfilling his promises to their fathers in their day. So Moses goes all the way back to the beginning. He talks about the creation. He talks about his promise to redeem. He talks about Father Abraham. And here is what's especially important to remember. The author of Genesis is the man who's leading God's people from their place of slavery, their land of slavery, to a very specific part of God's good earth. He's told them it's a land of great beauty. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land that in comparison to Egypt will seem to them like paradise. So with that context in mind, this may or may not have ever been a question that has occurred to you, but it would most certainly have occurred to the Israelites camped in the wilderness on their way to this mystery land. What is the relationship between the land of Eden that Moses is describing in Genesis 2 and the land of promise that Moses is in the midst of leading God's people too. Is it merely a coincidence that Moses, in the midst of leading God's people to the land of Canaan, pauses here in Genesis chapter 2 and gives such a careful description of the land of Eden? Or is Moses, in fact, Here in Genesis 2, giving God's people his first description of the very land he's leading them back to. Is the promised land and this so-called lost land of Eden one and the same land? If you consider those questions, turn ahead in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15 for some help in answering them. This is the account, also written by Moses, just a few pages later, where God tells Abraham the location of the land that he's promised to give to him. It's a wonderful passage in Genesis 15, a covenant-making ceremony that takes place I'll begin at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, note carefully, 
to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Look closely at verse 18. The familiar way of speaking to us, having come from Genesis 2, there's a way that God uses of telling Abram what land this is that he's going to inherit. It's a way of marking it by means of rivers. In chapter 15, it's a little bit easier for us to figure it all out, to be sure. Even in the 21st century, the river of Egypt in verse 18, well, of course, that's the Nile River. And if you were looking at your Bible maps, it's down in the southwest of the land of promise. The other river, the great river, the Euphrates River, that is also a famous river, easily ascertained. And it is to the northeast. And so what God is doing is he's saying, Abram, I'm giving you everything between the river Euphrates and the river Nile, the river of Egypt. Everything between those rivers is going to be yours, even though there's a lot of people living there now. We'll take care of them. Now, maybe chapter 15, in all of its clarity, can help us understand what Moses is doing in Genesis chapter 2. Go back to that, of course, now. He's there describing the location of Eden. Are there any parallels? Well, right off the bat, we recognize the river Euphrates is mentioned in both places. In Genesis 15, it's the northeast boundary of the land that's promised to Abraham. And could it not, in Genesis 2, be serving the same role, along with the Tigris, which is its twin sister river? Might it not be? serving in Genesis 2 also as a boundary. Well, that would depend on where those other two rivers are. And what would Moses' hearers have associated them with? Let's start with the river Kishon. doesn't show up in the Old Testament, but the land of Havilah certainly does. Genesis 25, 18, we're told that the sons of Ishmael settled in the land of Havilah. From Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, or as one of, you, or one of your translations has it, near the eastern border of Egypt. Or 1 Samuel 15, we're told Saul defeats the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur which is near the eastern border of Egypt. In both places, this land, Havilah, is in proximity to Egypt. Euphrates and the Tigris in the northeast, Havilah in the southwest. And then we don't know much about Gihon. It doesn't come up again in the Bible, but the land of Cush certainly does. You might think of the land of Cush as the land from whence Moses 
wife was from. Remember that account? Recorded in Numbers chapter 12, Moses married a Cushite woman. Miriam and Aaron had some issues with that. You might remember the story. Imagine Moses himself having married a Cushite, speaking in Genesis 2 of the land of Cush. And where was the land of Cush? My Bible encyclopedia says it quite simply. It's an Egyptian Hebrew term, broadly referring to the countries of Upper Nile, south of Egypt. The Greeks call the land of Cush Ethiopia. Interestingly, the land of promise to Abraham was bordered by Egypt, the Nile, and in the northeast, the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And now here in Genesis 2, looking back, the four rivers reference these four lands that are in the northeast and the southwest. What does all this point to? Brothers and sisters, it seems to point to Moses writing about the location of this land of Eden to his fellow Hebrews who know full well where Assyria is in the northeast. They know full well where Egypt and North Africa is in the southwest. They're precisely the lands that border the land of Canaan, the land promised to Abraham. So if this is correct, here's what it means. When God promises to Abraham the land of Canaan as a gift to him and his descendants, and then later when God sends Moses to lead his people back there, God is restoring his people to that original place in the world called Eden. Where the garden once was. Here's how Richard Pratt puts it, who I am indebted to. In the opening chapters of Genesis, God planted a sacred garden with the goal that his kingdom would fill the whole earth with obedient servants one day. Sin led to humanity's expulsion from Eden and corruption of the physical world. Yet, in the days of Moses... God led Israel back to what was likely the original location of Eden, to the place we call the promised land. Pratt goes on to say, Moses' description of the garden is so complex that many of our modern questions about Eden will always remain unanswered. Yet, it's possible for us to grasp the central concerns in Moses' presentation. Moses described the Garden of Eden in ways that identified Eden with the promised land. From Moses' perspective, the land to which he was leading Israel in his day was actually the location of the primeval land called Eden. That's why I've spoken of Moses as the man who gave instructions for finding Eden. The men of his day His description would have pointed to what we now call Palestine. These rivers he's speaking of that once fed the land of Assyria in the northeast and Egypt in the southwest and beyond. 
The Israelites, as they follow this man through the wilderness, would have realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's where he's taking us. He's taking us back to this land of Eden. So let's spend the rest of our time under this third heading. The meaning of the story of Moses and the return to Eden. Appreciate Dr. Pratt's professional modesty. Uh, there is no consensus of Bible students around this thesis that the land promised to Abraham was actually in the same part of the world where God first planted a garden for Adam, but you probably discerned I'm sold on it. Uh, here's the default theory that many have adopted about the land of Eden. Tigris and Euphrates that are mentioned, that's not the border of the land. That's actually the land itself. It's the land of two rivers. And that explanation usually says, well, we just don't know where the other two rivers are. And so we're just going with the ones we know. And that places the land of Eden in modern-day Iraq. Interestingly, that's also where Abram lived when God first called him. One of the interesting implications of that view of where the land of Eden was is that when God came to Abram and said, I have a place for you, he told Abram to leave the land of Eden. In the view that I'm presenting, Abram is actually called by God to return to the land of Eden. Now, happily, there are no doctrines at stake in this particular decision about where ancient Eden was located. But in the time that remains, brothers and sisters, I want you to consider how other teachings of Scripture become even clearer, and I'll say this way, more vivid. If Moses was, in fact, in Genesis 2, describing in the land of Eden, the land that he was leading God's people back to. I would submit in three ways, it sews up so much. Of the Bible. Number one, makes even more sense of the Old Testament emphasis on the privilege of being given the land of Canaan. Really is striking, I think we'll see this, how later descriptions of Canaan are similar to this description in Genesis 2 of Eden. Did you notice, of course you've noticed, the uh, fruit that is mentioned in Eden. This is a place full of fruit, of delight. Do you remember what the... Children, do you remember what the spies brought back from the land of Canaan that showed the people that it was a wonderful land? Remember the children, the spies were sent by Moses. Numbers 13, we read about what they come back with. They came to the valley of Eskol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eskel because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Now, when they came back bringing, hauling, trucking that one, that one cluster of grapes, you know the effect that it was going to have, what they intended to have. Let's get going. It's going to be worth it. All this travel, all this struggle, it's going to be worth it. This is quite a land. 
Maybe that's why Moses in Genesis 2 takes a moment to mention that in Havilah, there's gold in them, their hills. Delium, well, we're not sure. That's a precious stone of some kind. Onyx stone, that's another gem stone. It would later be mounted on the breastplate of the high priest. But why is Moses telling his readers that this is a land of wealth and resource unless he too is motivating them? The wilderness is worth it. The land is good. This is what the Israelites were to learn God's favor to them in placing them in that land was like his favor to Adam when he first created him. Moses was taking them to the choicest place on earth. It would be their privilege to dwell with God there and serve God there in, well, you could call it old Eden. Israel was the chosen people unspeakably privileged over all the other nations and being led back to the land of Eden would only have made that all the more obvious. Here's a second thing it sews up so remarkably. It only further demonstrates how the covenants of the Old Testament are all about the fulfillment of God's calling on Adam. In the Presbyterian Church, we talk a lot about covenant theology, and we have in mind the covenants with Abraham and Moses and David in the Old Testament. Step by step, those covenants are doing something by God in the world. It's giving to a nation called the nation of Israel what was first given to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve are given the task, the calling, the privilege of ruling the earth and filling the earth. And those are the two themes that show up all through the covenants that God makes with Israel. Abraham, Moses, and David ruling and filling the earth. But here's the thing. Israel didn't just have lots of privilege thereby. A tremendous responsibility They were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. Like Adam was called to spread the blessings of Eden to all the earth. So wouldn't their being restored to that first place where mankind was called to rule and fill the earth make it all the more clear what they were to do? They were to share God's blessings with the whole world, a world that, at least in spiritual terms, was a wilderness apart from the knowledge of Yahweh. I find that this makes so much more sense to me of this all-pervasive emphasis in the Old Testament on the land. The land, getting to the land, the tragedy of being exiled from the land, the rejoicing of coming back to the land. It's all tied up in the mission that Israel had, which was actually first the mission of Adam. The land of Canaan was the Normandy beach of the kingdom of God. 
wasn't just a sweet vacation spot for Abraham's grandchildren. Abraham was supposed to be another Adam, the promised land, the beachhead for a worldwide kingdom. Perhaps you're thinking about us in the New Testament. Well, that's my third observation. Seeing this land of Eden as the land that Moses is taking God's people back to. Brothers and sisters, it makes it clear how the Great Commission in the New Testament is the fulfillment of that creation calling given to Adam. So the New Testament introduces us to the Messiah, this long-awaited king. And Jesus comes to do what others had failed to do before him. He comes to do what Adam had failed to do. He comes to do what Israel had failed to do in her mission. And, oh, he will succeed. He will rule the earth. He will fill the earth. You know where he makes that abundantly clear. It's at the end of Matthew's gospel. Listen for those two themes, ruling and filling. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You hear it? Ruling, filling. Messiah's reign is going to spread from that place where he spoke those words throughout the earth because Messiah's servants will fill the earth. Great Commission is the creation mandate renewed. That's widely appreciated by Bible students. Think about how much more vividly that's on display. If Jesus is standing in a place in the world saying things like this, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Think how vivid this all becomes if Jesus is standing not only in that part of the world that was originally given to Abraham, but the same part of the world that was first given to Adam. He's finally bringing it about. The fulfillment, not just of Israel, their calling, the calling of Adam and Eve to take the beauty of the garden and spread it to the rest of the earth. Uh, Folks, that's the future success of the gospel according to the scriptures. It's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, from there to the uttermost parts of the earth, and you and I are part of that. You could say it this way, the gospel blessings that we enjoy are exports from Eden. They've come to us from the land of Nazareth, the city of Jerusalem. What I'm submitting to you is Moses' intention to tell us the place where God first fashioned Adam and Eve planted a garden. Well, I had more things to say about the themes of the Bible becoming even more vivid, beginning to pop when we think of the land Moses is leading God's people to as the original land of Eden. 
if I knew at this point I would be at the hour. Let me close by telling you what's personally most edifying to me about what may be not so very mysterious about the land of Eden. It reveals a God, a God of redemption, who is undeterred from his original plan for mankind and the earth. We're about, not about, we are soon enough to come to chapter 3. The count of sin and rebellion and we're going to see that in all of its dreadfulness, it doesn't knock God off stride a bit. God is going to put on display his undeterred resolve. As a matter of fact, you could think of it this way. When man rebels, falls into sin, and God reveals his redemptive purpose, it's as if God says, this is going to be harder for you now. This is going to be more glorious for me. But we're still doing this. We're still doing this. God's called to Moses to take God's people back to where it all started, and day six puts God's unshakable resolve on display. Man in the image of God Filling and ruling the earth is God's plan A, and there's no plan B. God will even himself become a man in order to fulfill plan A. He'll take up residence in the ruins of Eden in order to bless the whole world. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Jesus, Adam's replacement, has done on a cross and an empty tomb. That's where he did it. You can actually find that on a map. Let's pray together. Lord, however we are privileged to grasp how all the threads of providence, fulfillment of your eternal decree do, are sewed up together. We're thankful that they are of one piece. an uncut garment in your mind to stand in awe that you are God who is presiding over all the events of this world, all the events of history in this world. And you are doing something that you started from day six of creation, the making of man. You are bringing to fulfillment that perfect plan. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you've become an Adam, a man, in order to secure that plan of the Father 
We pray that we look at events deeply disturbing, quite distressing in our day. We'll be encouraged, given sure hope that all will be brought to fulfillment as it has been coming to fulfillment through the ages. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will give us the privilege of extolling you as king, summation of all these things in the age that is to come. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.